0: Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Wednesday, August 4th, 2021. Very, very big day for animation fans. The second set of Short Circuit shorts from Walt Disney Animation Studios have just been posted on Disney+. You were a fan of the first set of these, right, Drew, or...?
1: Yes, I was. I mean, I went to this insane press event at Walt Disney Animation Studios where they sat us in the theater and ran, you know, all 14 in a
0: row. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, I I really love these and I was really excited that these showed up today.
0: The key to the short circuit films is experimental films done in a variety of styles. We had 14 of them drop back in January of 2020. We only got five this time around. I got to assume the pandemic played some sort of a role there, don't you think? Or Yeah, I think so, no yeah. Um, okay, we'll talk about this latest set of short circuits shortly, plus get to some other kind of huge animation news in a moment. But first, the news portion of today's fine-tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, back to the second set of short circuit shorts. This was a ridiculously strong bunch. I don't think there's a there's a real dud in the bunch. I agree, but did you have a favorite out of the pile or well, I mean,
1: I loved dinosaur barbarian, obviously, okay. yeah, very much in the vein of both primal and uh toy story at the time forgot with the kind of you know medieval setting and an 80s theme song I just thought that was really fun and I love that it was traditionally animated too I thought that was great
0: so this project was dreamed up by Kim Hazel if you looked at the credits there's a lot of heavy hitters from the 2d world who worked on this I mean Alex Cooperschmidt Randy Haycock Mark Mitchell at effects work by Dan Lund she talked about how they looked at a lot of 80s animation to sort of get the style right and that sort of thing
1: yeah, it reminded me of what was that Dino Warriors there we go. Where that show was where they. Were. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: Dino Riders, Dino Riders. Yeah. So, <laughs> what about you, Jacob? Frey's going home. Oh my God, <laughs> I was not ready for that. That was the wrong one for me to see, especially this year. But an amazing style piece with a great story that was told. So clearly, yet in such a minimalist style. And I love the little button at the end that life goes on. What did you think of, of Songs to Sing in the Dark?
1: Oh, I loved that. I, w- I would have watched that for another 15 minutes, I swear.
0: No, that, that's it exactly. Uh, uh, Rihanna Delanoy. I mean, crazy, crazy visuals. I would love to go back to that world. I'm hoping somebody at Disney looks at that one and, okay, let's revisit that idea. On the other hand, uh, Ryan Green's crosswalk was a lot of fun as well, though it had kind of a stop motion-y look, didn't it? Yeah, that that one and number two to Kettering both had
1: a, yeah, were very indebted yeah. to stop motion, which um, always makes me happy to see some mm-hmm. stop motion love.
0: Same thing here. And Lisa Ray's number two to Kettering, interesting use of lighting, color. Like I said, all five well worth going out of the way to, to see folks. And again, that's over at Disney+. Though, if we're talking about stuff that just bowed at Disney+, the latest two Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse shorts debuted today. We got Duet for Two. Uh, did, did you catch that one as well? Or? I did.
1: I watched both uh, today, yeah.
0: Okay. So tell me I'm not wrong that the agent was inspired by the look of Jim Carrey, right? <laughs> it would have been nice if they'd actually gotten Jim Carrey to do the voice.
1: Yes, but Jason Manzukas did a great job as the snake.
0: He did, and, yep. and did you do a freeze frame on the music chart as it rolled by?
1: I, I saw the Grim Grinning Ghosts right at the top, but yeah, I'm sure there were there were more
0: toward the bottom. They had a Gergie's Munching and Crunching's a remix, and I'll be surprised if this one hangs in there for a while. But they had Hunchback of Notre Dame, where his hit song was "Baby Got Hunch." Oh, I, I don't know if that one's going to last. <laughs> I did love that
1: the totally mini version of Minnie was in there um, when they're yes, sort of going through the yes. ages. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And Mouse, right? Yeah. Someone clearly had some fun with that one. Along with the bird watching one. I, again, I don't know if you paid attention to when Minnie opened her her trophy book, so to speak, of of, of all the pictures of the birds she got. And in there, what we had, Flit from Pocahontas, Madame Upanova the Ostrich Ballet Dancer from Fantasia, the Eukera Bird from Saludos Amigos, and Clara Cluck and Donald Duck. And while we're talking about birds, I should have mentioned with the Mickey Mouse short that debuted just last week, the Enchanting Hut. That one, if you haven't seen it yet, folks, is is a wonderful tribute to the Enchanted Tiki Room. Lots of, of great design and An ending that that clearly put you right inside the ride. And speaking of birds, what did you make of Tuca and Birdie getting picked up for its third season? Well, I haven't watched
1: it yet, but I am always happy when weird indie animation uh, succeeds, especially the way that it was treated by, after the way it was treated by Netflix. So I'm very happy that it's coming back.
0: So Tuca and Birdie, uh, which is an adult animated series, it, it begins streaming on on Netflix in May of 2019. And they canceled it. They hadn't even finished the run at that point, right? They were three months in and just announced that, I guess, based on Netflix's algorithm, it wasn't doing what it was supposed to. But then May of 2020, Cartoon Network announces that it's gonna get revived for Adult Swim. It debuts January 13th of this year. So again, we got a third season coming Which is great. Do you remember where Tuca and Birdie is produced? Is it Canada or here? I am not
1: sure, actually. Um, I'm not sure who is doing the actual animation for it.
0: Okay, because we got some distressing news out of Canada today. Where did you first learn about this?
1: I saw this on Cartoon Brew. Okay. But I also saw Jorge Gutierrez tweeting about it as well because he had just finished Maya and the Three with Mm -hmm. Tangent Animation. And then today comes the news that the entire studio is shutting down because Netflix was dissatisfied with their output. And so a couple of pretty high-profile movies are now canceled, too. The Monkey King, which was going to be produced by Stephen Chow, and High in the Clouds, Mm -hmm. which was being produced by Paul McCartney.
0: They used the phrase, shutting down production... As you mentioned, there's some fairly heavy hitters involved with this.
1: Yeah. I don't know if those projects are going elsewhere or the studio is going to be re, reanimated by somebody else. But I guess a lot of the, the confusion slash mm-hmm. consternation came from the animation software that they were using, which I didn't quite understand. But um, hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know. Well,
0: Tangent Studios has actually got two operation, production uh, hubs. One studio in Toronto, one studio in Winnipeg. And as you mentioned, Jorge tweeted out earlier today that this is heartbreaking. I wholeheartedly wholeheartedly adored working with all the brilliant and ridiculously talented artists, artisans, and producers at Tangent. What they accomplished with Maya and 3 is epic, and I'm jealous of future directors that will be lucky to create with them. Normally this would be a really sad day for animators in Canada except for the news that just came from Disney like an hour before we recorded right yeah
1: yeah this was this was shocking i did not i did not expect this coming
0: Please explain.
1: Uh, Well, basically, they're going to open up a Walt Disney animation studio in Canada, uh, in Vancouver, which is pretty interesting, especially as the rest of the company kind of moves towards Florida, where there used to be an animation studio. Now they're opening (laughs) an animation studio in Canada.
0: Yeah. And the Stories in the Trade uh, suggested that the first project that's going to get underway at the Vancouver operation is Moana the Series, which what was it, the Investor's Day presentation in December of last year? Yep. Um, they announced this, which uh, is supposed to show up on Disney Plus in 2023. But before that, we're going to get a Baymax limited series. That's supposed to debut in fall of this year. Then in 2022, front half of that year, we'll get Zootopia Plus, And then the latter part of, of next year, we'll get the Tiana uh, limited series. And buried in this news was talk of also staffing up at the Burbank end of things. It's- yeah, I
1: saw that um th- they were gonna add you know, I think there's like nine hundred employees mm-hmm. right now, and they're gonna add more for these these projects, but um yeah it's it's crazy.
0: you have to wonder, given the past year. And now we're verging on the 17 months of pandemic scrambling production and how animation at least was one of those rare forms of film production that people could actually do from home. Uh, How much of this do you think factored into that?
1: Well, you know, I think that the appetite for animation, as we've seen just these past few months between Mitchell's versus the machines and Luca I mean, these are things that people are absolutely adoring and and things that are being delivered via streaming. So Mm. I'm very interested to know what will come out of the studio. I mean, they they say special projects and Mm -hmm. television series, but I wonder if we're going to get some features as well. The other interesting thing is that that studio will, it it seems to be exclusively doing animation. It said that everything will be boarded uh, and developed in Burbank and then sent Mm -hmm. to Canada for animation, which is sort of weird. (laughs)
0: No, I agree. I agree. And one other thing that gave me pause was that they announced at the head of Walt Disney Animation Studios Vancouver, Amir Nasarabi Bandi. Very, very talented gentleman, previously vice president at Wildbrain, also worked at Illumination and Paramount Animation. But did you see where else he worked?
1: Yes, and this was the first thing I thought of when I heard the announcement, too, Jim uh, was that please explain. Okay. He was, he was the head of Pixar Canada, which was founded in April, 2010 and was closed in October, 2013. And what even they did up there is sort of a mystery because sometimes there'd be shorts and stuff coming out. And I'd say, Oh, is this the Pixar Canada team? And Mm -hmm. Pixar would always say, no, 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 this was, this is Emeryville. This is Emeryville. So I think they did some cars shorts. I'm sure they did stuff for the parks. Um, But yeah, it, it was a very bewildering little period in Pixar history. It was.
0: It was and it just I'm thrilled to see this being set up, but again, I remember things and it's like I remember Pixar Canada which came and went very quickly.
1: Yeah. It would be more exciting to me if there was actual development going on up there and maybe some, you know, some bolstering of young talent or giving, mm-hmm. you know, younger animators a chance, but it seems like it seems like it's just like Matt Granning and the Simpsons people sending it off to rough rough draft in, in Korea. You know, it's that mm-hmm. sort of relationship where we do all the creative heavy lifting and mm-hmm. you're just gonna get the thing animated. So who knows, Jim?
0: That looks like the first project will be Moana, which again we're not gonna see till two thousand twenty-three. Which again seems like a long time, unless, of course, you you compare it to another animated project which took eleven years. Is that what we yep. were told? Yep. Okay. And when we come back from this break, you'll hear Drew and I talking with with the gentleman who who made this film. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. which debuted just this past Friday, the 6th of August. And we enjoyed this film quite a bit, didn't we, Drew? Oh, yeah,
1: I loved it. I thought it was really, really wonderful. Beautiful design work, um, great songs that will get lodged in your head. So, mm-hmm. you know, have Spotify ready when the movie's over to, <laughs> to look up your favorite tune. But, yeah, I just thought it was a lot of fun. It was just a great mm-hmm. old-fashioned
0: musical. And,
1: and, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it.
0: I love that you use that term, old-fashioned, because in a weird sort of way, it felt very Dumbo-esque. It's a small story told well.
1: Yes, and it, and it is stylistically adventurous in the same way Dumbo is, I think.
0: Yeah. True, true. But we were lucky enough to get to talk with the gentleman who actually came on board, I want to say, in 2016, right? Uh, Kirk D'Amico?
1: Yeah, I think he, he came on after... Crude's 2 fell apart the first time. Kirk, I think, you know, we should start at the beginning, uh, 11 years ago when Viva was born. Can you, can you sort of take us through that process and what that has been like for you?
2: Yeah, I can. The, the 11 years ago started with Lynn. So that process I've only known from what he's told me from the very beginning. So okay. the, the, um, it was at a different company and it, Lynn had worked on about five or six songs, I think. I can't remember the exact number for demos for the particular story. The most important part of that story was the beginning. And that beginning is still very much intact um, from the original story uh, written by Peter Barsicchini. And that was really the story of Andres and Vivo uh, together as a duo. And I think this... Most appealed to Lynn um in the sense that growing up in New York, you see musical acts, buskers, you know, and they would do this sort of act every day, 20 times a day, seven days a week, uh, their entire life. And not only did these guys do an act for the street, but they also went home and had their dis- disciplined, regimented rituals, um, as a as as of you know, as roommates or father-son, whatever. So the uh the, the fact is, is that these two guys know everything about each other and their life is complete um, and that they, they love the music they play. They love being around each other. And Vivo as a character can't imagine ever, never imagined a day without Andres. Right. Both as a performer and as a person. And then just in one minute, all that's taken away from him um that was there and that's what lynn was always writing to and that was the core of the story um that we carried and then in 2016 when i became involved i started working with kiara udes who worked with lynn on in the heights as a writer and we started discussing the the rest of the story and where we want to take it and that brought into the story uh gabby and most of the uh the the journey of what is through Key West uh, into the Everglades, into Miami. Normally
0: with an animated feature, you're lucky if you get one really well-developed world. And with this one, if I'm counting correctly, there's five. I mean, you've got Old Havana, you've got Key West, the residential area, uh, Key West, the tourist corridor, Then the Everglades, and then finally this super neon version of Miami. What was it like to have to try to wrestle that to the ground? You know, to have a story work through all of those spaces.
2: Well, Russell, we just have the best art department in the world. I mean, that's how I did it. But, uh, you know, Roger Deakins and Carlos Zaragoza, for one. Um, but honestly, I think that the really fun thing about this movie was, and Lynn talked about it musically, we wanted to make a musical in the grand tradition of like an MGM stage musical, that it was really designed, right? And that, that's why Carlos had come up with the idea of even the opening up on the um, the curtains. So that we are in a, you know, this is a theatrical presentation of this world. And the fun part about working through all these was that they had a story to tell in their own right because of Wage way Vivo's mindset was, right? So it was taking him from these worms of Havana, this beautiful place that he knew, these two blocks that were his life, and throwing them into that kitschy Key West, mm-hmm. um, and then carrying them through exactly, as you say, that tourist area into the Everglades. And the thing about the Everglades is while he is a Kinkajou that was originally from the rainforest, he's lived with an old man in an apartment since he was basically two. So he's a city guy. And I think that Lynn's attitude and the way he, you know, the way he expresses himself as a city, uh, city guy. So that was really fun. It developed that, which was what would... Constantly considering what would a little guy, a little, a little kinkajou, where, how, how would he feel about these places? And then the fourth one, as you mentioned, Miami, which was such a fun riot of color and idea, which was taking all of like the contemporary architecture of Brickle and smashing it against all the Art Deco of Ocean Drive and lighting it all up like Emerald City, so that Vivo had sort of this taken him from even visually taking him from the place that he loved the most um, and through things that seem super scary. And but his relationship with Gabby, when they enter the Mambo Cabana and we have that moment where Vivo is separated from Gabby, but he goes into Marta's dressing room and we come back to the Havana style and the Havana look. And so that idea that Marta, Gloria Stefan's dressing room was going to be sort of a return home in a way. That in a way, if he was to think that, could he choose that life was havana the life and then he would go to that window and look out on miami and go i'm ready for this because in the beginning when andres is like we're going to miami he's like i am not going anywhere near that place so so i think that the idea that we were constantly remembering that and then lynn would be talking about it musically The idea that we would come from a place with music like One of a Kind or with the music of Mambo Cabana, which was more of the warm water to Vivo. And then we were going to throw him into the cold side of the pool when he meets Gabby. Um, Constantly trying to just see what we could do for his arc and making sure that the the journey was refreshing visually and and sonically.
1: Well, Jim, I'm going to add another setting there, which is the kind of musical world, like the fantasy kind of world that they go into as well. So I was wondering if you could talk about that and what that approach was. I mean, obviously you're working with completely different rules because nothing is, you know, concrete. And so I would really love to hear more about that, the creation of that universe as well.
2: Yeah, great. So the two parts that... Um, at the beginning, it was like, we're going to have eight different, eight to 10 different songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And we're going to do a different look for every song. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. You're crazy. Uh, There's, there's no way. Uh, But so the thing was really finding the ones that were most earned and organic. And I, the Mambo Cabana was one that came, uh, as I say, Carlos Zaragoza, Roger Deakins and the entire art team um, brought this, this world to life and, the thing that's that's organic to the storytelling and 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 that was part of what we were trying to do is make it that Vivo, it was through Vivo's POV. So he grew up in an apartment that the only thing he knew about Miami was from some old gym floor record com- covers. Right. Right. That's, that's how he sees Miami. And in some way, maybe that's the way Andres still sees it. Andres is maybe, you know, he doesn't have access. He just, you know, he's living in the past. Um, his regrets are in the past. So his vision of what Miami was, was 1959. And so but bringing in Vivo's idea that it was like a record, an album cover come to life. And so I would we thought that, wouldn't that be great? Like if someone said to you, you know, you can go into an album cover come to life. Like, I feel like it was like when I'm with my kids and I'm like, we're going to go do this. And they're like, I don't want to do that. I'm like, come on, it's going to be fun. Like, I really don't <laughs> want to do that. Like to us, it's like, you really don't? This is going to be cool, right? Whatever you do as a dad, you're like, what, really? And so that was the thing with Andres. He's telling him like, look at this world, it's going to be beautiful and Vivo. And I just love the way Lin wrote those lyrics and the, he delivered those lines of, of of pushback to his dad. Like, you know, the father figure, it's like the pushback in those is like that comedic tension between Vivo and Andres and that, that this man showing him all this beauty and Vivo's a little bit like, you know, it's a little sorcerer, but he's just trying to like hold back the dike. It's like, but, but no, no, not over there. Put it back, put it in the refrigerator, all the magic. Um, that was something that I think, again, it was earned by the character and the story we were telling. And so the second one that really blows all the rules out again is the own drum sequence, which it was um, Carlos Aragosa and our board artist, Carlos Romero. When we started working on it, it was, We got the song from Lynn and it was, we always knew that Gabby was this character. She had existed for a while in our boards and our screenings as that character, but she didn't have her song yet. And so when that, but we did have the room. And so Carlos and his team had designed that room, her bedroom, um, to be sort of like very eclectic. Like she, she would make giant loudspeakers out of refrigerator boxes. She had a DJ table. It was just who she was. She was like a downtown kid, you know, in the suburbs. So it's like, she was trying to express herself. And when Vivo shows up there, the idea that that room would come to life and the motion graphics and be this music video of a, uh, and I said, it's funny. Cause we actually, you know, referenced like Missy Elliott videos and stuff and her style. And then later on, only two months ago, literally Missy Elliott, Vivo come together and she does a remix of our song on drum uh, in the movie, which is like Lynn's, you know, is, is she's, is he, he tweeted about it. So like his idol was, does a remix. So it's like our little art project was like came to life. It was like this little thing We're like, Oh, look at that. Like the whole sequence where she's being trailed by the whole marching band and all that kind of stuff. It felt like we were doing like the, throwing the MTV, like all the rules, you know, we could at that sequence because, we're like, wouldn't that be great? That would look cool to us. But Vivo is just like, you are scaring the hell out of me. You know? <laughs> like, I want nothing to do with this. And again, I think that that's the the fun of the way Lynn plays plays it.
0: The event that sets the story forward, we lose Andreas, and and I love how you staged that with the sensitivity coupled with the art direction. I mean, you know how the color was literally pulled out of the scene that's got to have been a lot of talking about, because obviously this is a, f- a film you want kids to watch. And how much is too much?
2: What were the conversations there? There was a moment there that we had, it was a couple influences. I mean, Brandon Jeffers, my co-director and I were, that was a moment where storyboarders, story artists and art department. And again it's the tip of the hat that to Carlos aragoza is just an amazing production designer he had come up with the idea we used to have an idea that the when the doors kind of blew open all the sheet music flew out and that he'd be chasing all of this and then we just when it came to just the one song but that sort of flying on the flying on the wind and sort of taking him away and sort of that sort of that idea um that was his idea and then I just fell in love with it and even the the staging, which was one thing was like, we're like, we're going to need a wingback chair. Yes, we are, because nobody wants to see the face. <laughs> so, luckily, there's beautiful old the wingback chairs. <laughs> like, and, and and the part with the figure, I remember, I think James Baxter pitched that. I really do. I got to remember because we, he was still, he was on the show then at the beginning and helping with the character designs and, and and helping all around. But I think that was his pitch is that he would hold it and, and and hold on to it and not want to let go. And then the wind would go and blow the, the song out. And then when Roger showed up, I remember he and Carlos and Roger had a lot he brings brought as he does a lot of photos from real life like photographers and that's what we were using. And there was these photos that he had shown us that had that color as you say the color taken out especially the one that shot that really gets me is there's that the one of the uh the wide of Havana of the Malecon because we saw the early one when we come in and it's all joyful and then that one that's just sitting there and Alex Lackamore's score too you know I think that was a a big part of, of 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 helping us um you know music doing the heavy lifting there because that was quite a quite a moment but yeah that was it took um it's one of those ones that was really super special because it's you know as you guys know it's like when all the disciplines get to work together it's like where the little magic happens and it was like who's gonna go first or what happened but it was like we got the wing back all right that that's done okay we don't have to think, don't we don't want to see the cadaver right, so that was the uh, the less gentle way of putting it but yeah that was the the the, the, the staging issue.
1: Well, you talk about staging and talk about Roger Deakins, and I want to talk about the opening.
2: Yeah. sequence
1: the shot this endless shot I uh, think I could I think I could pinpoint some of the stitches but yeah. I, you know I'm a, when I rewatch it again I'll send it to Garth and you can confirm or yeah. deny where these are but um can you talk about what that was like was he like you, you know were you saying like this is our 1917 uh, moment you know and yeah but yeah I would love to know everything that went into that
2: okay sequence. yeah so that was you know, the, when we first started working on that sequence, that song, like I said, it existed in a long time. Um, you know, it was rewritten. Lynn would rewrite lyrics and a whole flashback sequence we put in very re- recently, well, last year, but um, to explain, because the one part about that was Lynn was very hopeful and kind of adamant that we started on music. We didn't, We so that little flashback of where they met yeah. used to exist as a prologue, as one could usually understand is like, usually you go linear and it's like, and then this happened to me. And then I met the guy and Lynn was like, no, no, we're starting on the music. And then I'll, I'll get that. Just give it to me, give me that piece. And I will make that for you. I will put that in my, I will tuck that in. I will tuck that in. And so the, the, in the idea of what it was, it was just trying to show the synchronicity, right. Of who they were and keeping them together and making it that they were completing each other. And the one shot idea came from our choreographer, Calvin Hodge. Um, uh, Calvin Hodge did all the dance choreography for that number. And he and his team shot it like with their camera, you know, with our young duck John, who's our head of layout was there. And they sort of choreographed it to be shot. Um, Now it's not exactly like it is because it's not, they only had a small stage with 10, 10, you know, 10, 12, you know, uh dancers, not like what we have and stuff. Um, and they couldn't fly the camera up high and bring it down, of course. But the idea of putting it together felt like good storytelling, you know. And so, yeah, exactly what you're saying about the stitching was everyone's like, Well, who's going to animate that shot? Like, when do they have yeah. to work? right? Like, <laughs> and so the 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 one part that was really interesting about that one, and it's just kind of particular to this movie, make this one for me. I'm learning, but was the way team music and team visual work together because Alex Lackamore watching our screening was like, can I just say something? It's like, there's some times where I feel like you're taking the camera a little bit farther away from our guys. And uh, I know it's, they're singing my, you know, they're singing our stuff. And it was like, because we were presenting things more theatrically, it made more sense to come in. And so it's like following, almost like following the lead with the spotlight on stage. Right. And then the, the background dancers come in and out but you are keeping the focus on those two. Uh, So that was really sort of gave us some discipline for it because at the beginning it was like, whoa, look at how cool. There's so much eye candy here. Right. You know, and it sort of brought it back to some discipline. And um, I think that the the fun of that sequence watching it develop was when animation was taking it and took the choreography of Calvet, and there's some really good reference and blended it all together. I, I was like, There was a moment there where I lose, like, I'm like, wow, that's like, that's, those are, I'm there. Like it really felt, and that was part of Carlos Zaragoza's original design of the shots where we came through and the, the, in the colonnade and the Plaza Vieja and all those things like, it's like coming into the side of a theater, right? It's like, it's, you're still on the stage. And so everything was blocked there that we were, we were in the audience or in that respect, I think we were, we were a tourist, right? we weren't there. And then in the end, just to jump, but like in inside your heart, we wanted to put the audience back into the theater. Right. Right. So it was constantly playing with the idea of, are we watching, are we in a movie or are we watching a show? Right. Right.
0: In a lot of ways, it's a beautiful, classic, little animated feature. You know, again, if you think about how Dumbo started off in Florida and you know, that, that sort of thing, but at the same time, what I love about this is it's today's Florida. Like for example, when you made the ball python the villain in the Everglades, because, again, they're, they're having that horrible problem with the invasive species. But at the same time, I love how you, you do things like it would have been so easy to make the Sea Scouts, the little girls, the trio little girls, the villain. And the fact that you make that turn, you know, two-thirds of the way through the story, it's like, no oh, okay, we'll help, we'll get you there. And, I mean, that would have been
2: an easy out to keep them as the villain. What was behind that? Uh, well the, the the Girl Scouts were they were developed at a time when we were the, the the thing about this movie and thinking about villains and it is it is this classic like you say it's it's a small story but it's also we have a kid and a kikachu so the villain you, if you grew, went to like reach for something giant mm-hmm. I think the thing would have collapsed I mean you know what I mean like if it had become like a world save mission it's a it's a, it's a tale you know about doing a noble mission on behalf of your friend. So the, the, the level of the, adversaries or the antagonists, if you will, had to be sort of just a step above where our kids were. You know what I mean? Like in a way that they kept it sort of feeling grounded um, because we would have instantly known that they couldn't have dispatched of any real villain. There's a 10 year old girl. That at you. So the idea of doing these uh, the, the, and, and the fact that they were so well-meaning and officious so they were just wanting to save this thing, just was a great idea that 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 was pitched to us that I felt like if there was a chance to have an opportunity and this was something we worked we I got to work with Rich Moore and Jim Reardon on this film so and and they have such a great uh, feeling for how the that's the tone of those sequences worked um and especially when you're talking about the the Python and and we worked with that for a long time before we got Michael Rooker and then when we got Michael Rooker it's just like it was so much fun because he brought so much delicious old, like swagger to it and that it made sense in a Broadway because I keep saying them, like in a Broadway musical. I know it's a movie, but we I thought we thought about it like a musical. Right. Like so it's like the villain shows up and he's got swagger, you know, and he's it was like, a you know, it's a star turn. Right. For the one big sequence where that great big theater actor sings his one song, you know, whatever has his one moment. So that was kind of the the moments of working through those, those characters.
1: I wanted to ask about the decision to not have them actually communicate with each other, because I know that this was, this was an ironclad rule at Disney. Uh, Your buddy, Chris Sanders was ultimately felled by this rule, I think on American (laughs) Dog. Um, So I wonder, did you have that kind of in mind? Obviously they, they communicate through song and that's a big part of the kind of learning and kind of you know journey of the movie but did you think about that was there ever a time when they actually understood
2: each other you know what we never there was never a time they actually understood each other and you know i'm the biggest like ratatouille is a movie i watch all. i like it's like one of my the best and I and i was like it can be done i believe it can be done we can pull this off and the one thing we had that maybe they didn't have which is we had lynn as the singer. Songwriter and the performer and the lead. So when we got into trouble, like if you had to figure out his internal thoughts or the communication, there were songs, right? There was music. Right. And so that knowing that was a, I think it's a unique situation, right? I mean, because in a musical, in the keep the beat song where we had it, that, that idea was, it was a great little sequence that was already scripted, but now he could sing what his internal, so it's like the novel right now. You can can do that. So using that, I once maybe it is a crutch. It's a tool, right? It was in the toolbox. So, and then we also, you know, got to work again with the the great Randy Tom and Randy, you know, does an amazing job of building that performance of animal and human you know, communication uh, through sound design. And I think that there's something magical really about not being able to talk. I always say it's like, you know, it's like babies and puppies, you know, you project your best thing, your best, best party you onto them. Right. You don't ever hear them complaining. That's why we love them so much. Um, and so it was a little bit of a discipline that I think helped us. And it gives you that emotional touch because, you know, Linz does anthropomorphic sounds in this movie, as he does on the raft where we hear him doing his cartoon, like really letting, having fun uh, making sounds. But then there's Randy's sounds, you know, in much of the film where he's communicating, um, you know, via sound, sound design.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's pretty exceptional.
0: Over the course of career, you, you've worked with huge talents like John Cleese and, and that sort of thing. But this must have been different in that, You and Lynn are starting work, you know, all of the Hamilton craziness is going on, you know, the Pulitzer Prize, 11 Tonys. And, you know, what was it like to be in a situation where all that's going on? And here you're trying to get this new project off the ground and sort out all the story problems. And how did you compete for attention during the middle of
2: that hurricane? You were there, weren't you? I could tell you were there because you just (laughs) figured it out exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm like, Oh, Jim, you're right. That's what it was. <laughs> oh man. That's a good question. <laughs> uh, boy. Yeah, it, it was, you know, the thing with Leonard, he is just, he, And I, I think it was a, his connection to the material. He said, it's like, other than in the Heights, it was the longest he ever worked on anything is this, you know, it's, it was 10 years. I think he said like in the heights was his twenties and this was his thirties. Right. So it's like, um, He had such a connection to the material and then it grew because I think also like, and he said it, uh, you know, I thought I've seen him say it now on, on the stuff. So we could say it, but like, you know, his, his son's connection to the movie too grew, you know, his younger kids, you know, so his time and his focus and his ability to multitask is it's, you know, it's part of his genius, but Mm -hmm. it was uh, especially, I think that thing that we had was that emotional commitment, A, to the, to the, to the material, be to, you know, in working with Kiara and Alex um, is, is, was big because the shorthand, it got things done quicker, right? Because I think there was a little bit of like, and I may be, but like that he would be t- able to take a song to, to where he thought he needed to then have it to, for Alex to understand it and to take it from there because they had done so much before. And same thing with Kiara. So that shorthand with his trusted colleagues, you know, and the people that he's already made art with, I think helped that. And then as we were going through, we had the, because he was connected in so many ways, like I say, as a singer, as a songwriter, and as a producer, and as an actor, if it was just the songwriter thing, I think you would have that problem a lot more, right? Because you would come back and be like, where are we with the story? It's like, wait, you just recorded it. Right. Oh, right. I just, so because of that um, integration, I think it was, he was able to, um, you know, the time that we had with him was really used as a, it was multitasking all the time. We'd be doing vocal records and then he'd be writing a song or I know that they'd be doing on song and then something would be pitched back to story, you know, so it did it did work both ways. So I know we just have a couple more
1: minutes left, but I was wondering if you could if you could talk about working with with Rich and Jim and their oh, yeah. whole crew. I mean, I think this is the first Sony thing that he's actually got a credit yeah. on. Um, and jim and i love him and you know oh, obviously yeah. Yeah. a man who makes three animated movies in 10 years or something i mean it's absolutely insane so mm-hmm. i was wondering what that was like you could
2: just kind okay. of stand next to I the yes and it
1: he up yeah. so okay. we were, you
2: know what he came in at a time um you know it's, as you guys know it's like the stories and, and there was so much and, and rich just he was just the greatest because he knew that he's like, I see what you guys are trying to do and I want to help you do it. And that was the attitude. And that was it, you know? And so, and he loved, uh, he loved Lynn's work. He's a big, huge Lynn fan. They had known him, whatever. So it was like that sort of coalesced. And then Jim came a little bit later. I don't even know if it was a week or a month or maybe a little bit more when Jim joined and he just, you know, again, it was just like so many moments that, we'd be in a thing. Uh, I could tell you one of the best uh, for me that, you know, in in that Jim had pitched was the idea of when they hit the the door in the, in the theater and when they have to split up and the fact that Vito will be on one side of the door and her on the other. I mean, it's a small thing, but it was like, it's so great. I just loved it. And Jim pitched that. I was just like, I got it. That's so heartbreaking. We're like, Oh, that's the hardest thing. And it's like, yeah. And then he's going to push the bracelet through. I'm like, stop it. Don't do that to me. But, uh, you know, so we were just so lucky, you know, because it it felt like in a way that was one thing I think about the music, having the music stewards, we're all kind of stewards, like little vivos, like we're going to get this made. We're going to get this little movie made and uh, no matter what the risk. And so I think that that was great that Jim and Rich, you know, and they have a completely different, you know, they have so much more, Experience that I do, they like did their ten thousand hours plus. So like when we were, you know, the layout, all those things are super. You know, I was just yeah, of course I want help. You know what I mean? I could never be the biggest moron not to take help from them. But the uh, so it was like it was really that was part that I just uh, you know I got to learn so much. You know, and and I feel like that's what I always love about animation. Honestly, you know, like because I got to bring, I worked with Roger on Crudes. I got to say, hey, Roger, you want to come to Sony? Never you know it's like come over and work on this movie we showed it to him and I know that our artists were inspired every day you know because they got to work with with Roger you know and it feels like that's the you know that that's the process that I love and even when James worked on it at the beginning and doing Gabby you know all the all and did a first pencil test of Vivo you know and then Gabby and stuff so um I feel like that's the coolest thing about animation, you know, is like when you can meet new friends, it's like, now I'm just pitching the film. It's like, yeah, go on an adventure, meet new friends. But the, uh, yeah, it's like, I feel like, uh, you know, you have this, you have this plan. It's like, it's all gonna work out. And then you're like, oh God, we're in the Everglades. And then Rich and Jim show up. So I was like, okay, we're gonna figure a way out of this.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much. We feel like we met a new friend today oh, cool. with you, Kirk. Cool. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you so much. We both love the movie and uh, we can't wait to see what you do next.
0: Okay. All right. Sounds good, guys. Thanks so much to the folks at Netflix for giving us the opportunity to talk with Kirk. And, and Sony
1: Pictures Animation, Jim.
0: There we go. There we go. This one is worth chasing down, folks. To have followed Wish Dragon with this one, that's a great one-two punch.
1: How about one-two-three punch with, uh, with Mitchells vs. the Machines, Wish Dragon, and now Vivo? This, I is, mean, true. this Sony, is true. Sony and Netflix have had an amazing year um it's just really incredible stuff
0: yeah but to circle back to the news at the top of the show you know what just happened with the mccartney project and geez i hope that gets straightened out and like i said i'm hoping that stopping production doesn't necessarily mean i mean again if you think about the vivo story you know where the studio fell out from under them but it still managed to find a home and get done well, anyway, folks, that's going to do it for uh, this week's fine-tuning, but if you're looking for something else truly entertaining that you, you can check out uh, online, there is, of course, the the Light the Fuse podcast uh, that Drew does that's about not just Mission Impossible, but the John Wick films. Likewise, Top Gun. See, I finally remember Top it. Gun. You did it. There yeah. we go. And, and so what have we got coming up now?
1: Well, we haven't recorded anything new since we last talked, Jim, but we have a mm-hmm. bunch of great episodes coming up, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of great people that were actually connected with the first movie, um, and yeah, and then we're going to just start getting ready for Top Gun Maverick, um, mm-hmm. and we'll have a slate of episodes tied into that before the movie's release later this year, so definitely stick around, and hopefully there'll be some a few surprises related to the show coming soon that we can talk about.
0: All right, can't wait, can't wait. Okay, uh, our side of the events we've got a Disney dish, which I do with Lentesta. We have Marvelous Disney, which I do with NR and Adams. Dustin Fuse, we're going to get a new Universal joint out. In fact, I think I'm sending him a letter tonight. If you're not paying attention to what Drew is doing on social media, you're missing a lot of fun stuff. Uh, so just a reminder of, of where folks can chase you down on Twitter.
1: Yeah, Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt, on Instagram and uh, Twitter.
0: You can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and our Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. And uh, thanks for listening, folks. And Drew and I will be back soon.